Hello and welcome to the Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Welcome to this week's episode of The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Today's guest is fantastic, and I'm excited to share her with you. Susan Winter is a best-selling author and relationship expert specializing in higher thinking for an evolving world. She writes, speaks, and coaches on cutting-edge partnership models, as well as traditional relationship challenges from a platform that fosters self-esteem and personal empowerment. Having graduated from Indiana University School of Music, her experience as a professional communicator led her from opera singer to on-camera anchor. Transitioning from the stage to TV, Susan became the host and moderator of Corporate Profiles, on Financial News Network, which later became CNBC. Prior to that position, she spent a decade as the on-camera spokeswoman for over 200 of the Fortune 500 companies. Susan is the recipient of numerous awards in the field of business communications. Given her vast media expertise, she worked as a consultant for the Television Bureau of Advertising, Miramax Films, and in strategic alliance with but Gary Bowen's Fortune 100 clientele. Aware that the foundational shifts in social consciousness alter consumer preference, Susan's understanding of human behavior helps her clients anticipate trends while connecting to the heartbeat of their customers. In public speaking, Susan's keynote presentations range from mastering oneself to mastering one's love life. Her insights as a social commentator has earned her guest status on the iconic William F. Buckley's legacy show, Debates, Debates, as well as NPR. Susan's first book, Older Women, Younger Men, quickly became an international bestseller as it opened the hearts and minds of readers worldwide to the validity of this type of age gap love. Her second book, Allowing Magnificence, completely reframes how we view life's challenges, empowering the reader to reconnect with the limitless power they already possess. Susan is currently a contributing writer for the Huffington Post and the Good Men Project. Internationally recognized as a thought leader in her field, Susan's 150-plus media credits include The Oprah Show, The Today Show, Good Morning America, ABC, CBS, NBC, Evening News, CNN, BBC, Cosmo, Harper's Bazaar, People, Good Housekeeping, New York Magazine, The London Times, and The New York Times. In radio, Susan is a frequent guest on NPR, ABC, Playboy Radio on Sirius XM, and CBS News Radio. Susan, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Oh, Dr. Richard, thank you. It's a pleasure. So there's so many different things that we could talk about. You've done quite a number of different things from, as you, as I mentioned in your bio, beginning in opera to journalism. But how did you get into opera in the first place? That was simple. I 
wanted to sing. And I was working with a jazz singer in Minnesota. I grew up in St. Paul. And my father said, Susan, you have to have a college education. I said, no, 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 daddy. I just want to sing. He said, you need to. So I thought, okay, I love singing and I love acting. So I went to what I thought at the time was the finest university, Indiana University. Their school of music is um, just remarkable worldwide. And I uh, have a degree in opera and I have another degree in classical theater. As a matter of fact, our opera hall, where we have five operas every, every week and two on Saturday, is larger than the Met. And when I got to the Met, I'm like, really? This is it? So it's a pretty wonderful uh, breeding ground for voices and training. And I loved my time there. But that wasn't where you wound up. You spent some time doing opera, but then you shifted. Yeah. You know, I wonder how many people actually are in the degree that they started off with. You know, liberal arts, you have a lot of latitude, but I, I knew that I wanted to be in communication. I was always aware of the fact that whatever I had to say or whatever needed to be said I would be able to communicate it, whether it's sung or it's spoken. I did. I shifted because I never loved opera, Dr. Richard. I mean, I needed it. You, you learn it like you learn ballet if you want to be a modern dancer. But I didn't really love, I loved, I loved practicing. I loved the song, but I just, I wasn't crazy about the lifestyle. So I did some musical theater. I did some acting off Broadway, and I really realized that it was, for me, the kind of career that no matter what show you just finish, you start at the bottom of the rung again, because I spent most of my time auditioning. Then you'd do a season of shows, then you'd be auditioning again. And I thought, you know, there has to be a better way to spend my life. And uh, somebody on the side said to me, you know, I've got this agent, and he does these really cool things where he has professional speakers work with corporations. And I'm like, wow, this is great. And that's how I started getting involved with the companies. And that I really enjoyed. How long did you do that for? I think I did that, Dr. Richard, for about 10 years. And I loved my clients. I I worked as a spokeswoman. You know, that was the time period when video was big. And no matter how great your company, you may not want your CEO under cameras sweating, stuttering, and nervous. So if you want to present information to the public or to the media, you may want to hire a professional to be able to articulate it with some acting skills and presentational skills. So that's where I worked. And I had a lot of great clients, I have to tell you. But then you moved into journalism, is that right? Yeah, because there was a cap. You see, this was part of actors' equity and and the unions, and whether it's AFTRA or SAG or whatever. So you only made a day rate, and there was no way I could do, I could only work five days a week. It was like volume didn't matter. You couldn't earn any more than what you were earning. And I, I don't like having a cap on what I do. It would have been a great lifestyle to just continue doing. They pick you up in a town car. The clients are phenomenal. Uh, But I wanted to do more. And so I decided that I would try to try another venue. And I thought I used to watch Financial News Network. And I realized that every day they would do these incredible shows. And I thought I can do that. Wow. So you essentially saw an opportunity to apply for a position which is is now essentially an anchor on CNBC. 
Right. And, you know, the funny thing is I went to all of my agents and I said, hey, I want to do this financial news network. It's really cool. It's the first show that's got 24-hour stock ticker on the bottom. It's all business news. I work in this industry. I understand all these different elements. And they said, oh, you've got to be kidding. They said, Susan, you don't have a journalism degree. This is the top market in the world. You cannot enter. You know, if you want to go to Iowa and start the hog and the pig show, that's okay but you can't do it in New York. And Richard, I just saw it and I knew that I could do it. And I found my way there. And I think that's an amazing lesson because essentially, what are we taught in school? That, you know, we go get a degree, we get an entry-level job, we kill ourselves for 20 years to climb the corporate ladder. Basically what you said was, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, I'm going after what I want and I'm making it happen. You know, Dr. Richard, this was long before I knew about law of attraction. This was long before I had any awareness. But what happened to me was so natural. I would watch Financial News Network and I would see those anchors and watch them interact with the different CEOs. And I thought, I can do this. I do this every day. They do exactly what I do. Why am I not on television? And I kept seeing it. And then I had an opportunity. I was always trying to get into the new markets where nobody was there. And this was the very late 80s. And there was something about, um, there was a new form of interconnectivity where you would hook up through Videolink, Tokyo to London, to New York, to Sao Paulo. And you needed a moderator who was great on earpiece and great at navigating different people in different locations. It was very, very new technology. And so I went to a seminar about that, and I ended up sitting next to a girl who did not look corporate. And when I say corporate, this was the time period of the kind of um, the big shoulder pads and the greed is good in New York. And it was the time period where you had a very conservative look. Women wore very little makeup long skirts. And this gal is sitting next to me with a leather mini skirt and wild frizzy hair. And she just turned to me and she said, so why are you here? And I said, oh, I'm interested in new technology and new forms of presentation. And she said, so what do you really want to do? And I don't know, Dr. Richard, it's like I turned to her and I just said, I want to be on FNN. And I don't know why it came out of me. She was the one who had a connection for me. She draws herself back, looks at me and she said, I don't know you and I don't know what you do, but I have a feeling you're good. I'm going to give you a name. You never got it from me. Here's this guy's number. Remember, I don't know you. I called, you know, and it's like, oh, hi, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. I'll give us a call in two weeks. Okay. Hi, how are you, Susan? Okay. Call us in a month. Okay. Send us your tapes. Call us in another week. Finally, I got my interview with the head and somebody was leaving a show and I stepped in. It was awesome. Wow. So what did the guy say when you called and you had his number? How did did you explain where the number came from? Well, um, I said, um, somebody gave me your number at a cocktail party. It was like a networking cocktail party and and she didn't even qualify. She wrote it on the back of another card. I said, he said, what did she look like? I said, I don't know, blonde, wearing black. You know, I thought that's that's like almost every woman in New York, right? That's got a hair dye job. So he was in the wrong department, which was the only reason he was nice to me. Because if I'd gone to the right department, they would have said, no, we're not hiring. But I guess just laterally it happened. But the funny thing is that I was making really, really crazy sick money in my profession. And I had an agent. And so when I actually was offered this job, 
I said, okay, I have to call my agent and I, you know, I can verbally agree, but we can't do anything seriously until I get my agents okay, because that's the way it works. So this is pre-cell phone. And I said, do you mind if I use your office to make a call? So he walks out of the, the office. I tell her that I want her to talk to him. He comes back in. Uh, he had been the head of ABC, as a matter of fact, and he's sitting there. He tells her the price of the show and she hangs up on it. He said, she hung up on me. I said, yeah, yeah, she hung up on you. She said, I don't send her out for that amount of money. Are you crazy? So I had to call her back and say, you know, Carrie, we couldn't pay for this kind of exposure. I mean, I don't care what they pay me. I want to be on national television. This is actually international. So let me just do this. And she said, okay, I'll get an escalating scale. You started this, we double it, then we double it, then we double it to get up to your rate. So when you started it, it was not what you were expecting. You you didn't have the big crew that you thought you would. But what was it like for you when you actually started getting on the air? Oh, it's great because I've been on camera for so long. And not being on stage, Dr. Richard, is very different than being in front of a camera. You can be a great theatrical actress. And if you have never been in front of a camera, you can forget how to say your name and where you grew up. I, it's just, it's very intimidating. So the questions I worked, uh, corporate profiles was a CEO interview format. I got to interview the captains of industry. And I positioned it from more of the consumer standpoint. The way I wrote the show was to ask, you know, what would a 70-year-old widowed uh, person in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, want to know about their company? What would a 36-year-old young man who's upwardly mobile and, um, you know, buying his first home want to know about this investment? And so I just thought of the consumer, and that's how I crafted my questions. So when you were doing that, was that it for you? In in your mind at that point in time, was this the job you were going to have forever? No, no. I've I've never had a forever anything. (laughs) (laughs) It's always a stepping stone. It's always, you know, that that's the good news, bad news. I've never been able to be in something and like, oh, this is forever. Because even if that area is forever, you want to excel beyond your post. Uh, so I then started looking at daytime television, you know, the the morning shows, something like Charlie Rose. I mean, that would have been a normal evolution for me, but I'd no more than gotten my feet wet and gotten some shows under my belt and had other shows being offered to me when NBC bought us out. And kind of like a midnight deal, it was a shift from Westinghouse to NBC, and suddenly we were all displaced, everyone. So some people went to Bloomberg, and at that time, Bloomberg was just radio. And I was, I'd already built a dream home in the country, and I thought, you know, maybe I'll just retire, actually. I got a lot of cash. I'm fine. I'll play golf and figure out what I'm doing. And that's what I did. So I made a big shift. At the time, I probably should have dug my heels in and stayed here. Something urged me to go in another direction. And what happened What happened next? So you're thinking, okay, I've got my dream home, I'm retired, but things took a different turn for you. Well, I don't know where you live and where your viewers live, but you can live in the country and imagine you're going to drive to the city for work. And if you're in an urban area, that drive that normally takes 55 minutes could be a two and a half hour nightmare. So driving to my clients did not did not seem like that was going to be fun anymore. I was way out off of a train line and off of bus lines. And what I wanted was the one hour radius from New York City that was absolute 
rural country. And so I built my dream home on a golf course in horse country and mountains. And I, I didn't want it to feel like New York. It was supposed to be the opposite. And so when I got out there, I was indeed remote. And eventually, I, I mean, I went to my ongoing clients, but eventually I kind of stopped and I got into consulting positions and would come into New York rarely and then work via, you know, a computer. But I, I sort of stopped for a while and I didn't know what to do with myself. And that's when I had another change in my life, which led me to where I am now. I met a very young man in my gym and talked to him for a year, thinking I'm advising him on how to go on a date. Little did I know he would become a love of my life, uh, one of the great loves of my life, and all the chaos that would result because of that. And obviously you were advising him on how to take you out on a date is what it sounds like. No. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't have that in my mind. I was 39 and he was 18. I looked at him like this beautiful young kid that I was just advising in the gym. I didn't have him on my radar at all. I was just, I'd run into him all the time in the gym. And I kept thinking every time I'm here, he happens to be here. You know, a year later, I find out he's driving around, driving around, looking for my car. (laughs) <laughs> just and uh, accidentally showing up when I'm there. I'd had a younger boyfriend, so I, I was not un- unaccustomed to a much younger man. But this guy was, I thought he was 26. I had no idea he was 18. And I looked very young for my late 30s. But um, remember, this is a rather radical departure from the business suit. And in time, we became romantic. And he was my boyfriend for about five to seven years. I'll say seven because the last were kind of in and out and sketchy. We had a lot of problems with his family accepting this. Is that what prompted you to write your book? Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Richard, I mean, if they could have nailed me to the cross, they would have done it. They did everything they could. You know, I lived in a small rural community and these were people that didn't go to the big city. And it's, there's a mentality in some communities that different is bad. And I do understand if you have something unique. But in all time periods, whether it's interracial couples or it's uh, same-sex couples, uh, when we see something unusual, most people protest because it makes them feel uncomfortable. But the people who are finding this resonance with somebody, they're, they're not going out of their way to be contentious. You know, when our authenticity collides with what we are doing, we make a choice that is right for us, and it may not be the choice that others endorse. I had a petition signed. I had a TV show on, uh, it was called Higher Ground, uh, that was all throughout the Northeast on cable, and it was interviewing really phenomenal um, people like Carolyn Mace, and some wonderful, wonderful speakers. And they they sent it to all the local outlets claiming that I was a witch and a, and a prostitute. Two things, actually. Witch, prostitute, oh, oh, and a lesbian. Just, we can't forget that one. But that was very hurtful to me. I mean, now I think it's funny, but at the time, it was my community. And they're just the stories that were told. You know, Dr. Richard, it was too boring to just say uh, they happen to love each other and she's older. It was so much more interesting to make it that I had seances and he was under my spell and we did all this ritualistic stuff that was perverted. You know, it was um, so much more interesting for people to believe, but so difficult for me to live through. And that is indeed why I wrote the book. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. 
For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. Talk a little bit about the book, not only in terms of your process, what you went through writing it, but what readers would would get from it. This was an untapped market at the time. The Older Women, Younger Men, New Options for Love came out in 2000. We were getting close because once in a while you'd see an article about a woman dating a younger guy, but they were an anomaly. It was Cher's strange love life. That was it. When the idea came uh, to me via my friend, who's the co-author, I had had seven years of torment, absolutely choked inside. So I wrote very quickly. I would write three and four chapters a weekend, and I wrote by hand. I didn't use a computer. And so I'd hand her the chapters. She would type them up on a typewriter, and then she started to collect enough to have a query letter and to send to agents, and eventually we got an agent. And eventually we got a contract. You know, typical first writers, you it's not about the money. You'd be, uh, unless I had written a book on, you know, sleeping with Hillary Clinton, you're not going to get a lot of money for this. But the point is that the, the message was really important for any, any people who are experiencing uh, discrimination and hatred and bias simply because of the partner that they've chosen to love, where this time the woman happens to be at least 10 years older than her mate. I wanted to shift social consciousness and show people the inside story. So it was effortless to write, effortless, because I'd had this in my head for so long that it, I, I wrote the outline in less than five minutes. I showed it to my partner and I said, this is it. What do you think? She's like, good, just write it. And I said, okay. And that's how it happened. It was done very quickly. And what's amazing to me is you you mentioned you wanted to shift sh- social consciousness and bring awareness to something that really hadn't been societally tapped into before. And yet, in such a short amount of time after that, you reinvented yourself essentially as a relationships expert. And you're all over the media and doing these amazing things and spreading that word. Isn't it interesting? You know, uh, that single choice to not stay in television or not stay in New York and drive away at that something inside, you know, between the crime and just being tired of New York and wanting to live here for good, but not wanting to be in the center of it. And then that odd twist to my own personal journey that I couldn't have foreseen. I'd had a younger boyfriend. I did not have that kind of hatred. But with this younger boyfriend, wow. And sometimes this is what I think is interesting is that if we're actively growing, I think there are times that life wants to intercede and throw something in our path that we can't ignore. In this case, it was an absolutely deliciously beautiful younger man that was my kryptonite. He was physically my ideal. I mean, his mind, his body, his attitude, his, the way he thought, ugh, everything. And <laughs> so it, it certainly got my attention. And yes, I had to speak for all the people that had been 
maligned as I had. Even all the younger men who were um, accused of being gigolos or opportunists, the older women that were accused of being manipulators, you know, it could just be that they love each other. And once I did that, Dr. Richard, I was done. I actually, by about 2003 or four, I thought, this is it. I'm done. But at the same time, I noticed all this modern hookup culture. And I noticed the impact, not only on men, but on women who were calling me as friends, asking me what's going on. And I thought, wow, it's really bad out there. Something, something really changed. I mean, we came to the point of being courted and dated to you know, hooking up and having to discuss after sex, is this a thing? Or you know, discussing, negotiating monogamy. I mean, I'd never heard of this stuff. I thought it was absolutely crazy. And then it's, it's really been fascinating enough that I've wanted to stay in it uh, for all these years. When do you think that shift happened? I saw it around 2000. I, I, my thought is that, uh, you know, at uh, 11.59, <laughs> boom, it turned 2000 and that, it just, it broke. I mean, in a, listen, in a way, we needed the roles and the, and the cardboard cutout characters and stock characters uh, to, to fade away. We needed to bomb that. And I, I was one of the original people that wanted to get rid of that, but not wipe it off the table. I just wanted to blow the structure loose and say, here is one option, a straight man and woman where the guy is older. That is one option of relationship. It is not the only. And I wanted people to be creative and think in their trueness of what do they want and what do they need? Because if you are a person who can't do monogamy, you might not want to try marriage. And if you really know that about yourself, you may not want to go through marriage three and four and five and disappoint people. You know, maybe it's better to say, hey, I can't do this and tell your partner, I can't do it. And okay, five walk away and say, you're a cad. I don't want to deal with you. But the other one says, you know, I kind of feel the same way too. I'd like a partner, but maybe meet each other, you know, for the weekends. Is that okay with you? So I really think that uh, creating and crafting your own relationship, you know, that the work I'm doing now to help people to find what works for them is an outgrowth of living outside the box in a relationship paradigm that didn't look like anybody else's and that needed justification. So once I've realized that we can create our own romantic model, I'm always encouraging people to figure out how they want it. Because if you want marriage, that's awesome. I'm not against that at all. But you may not want the complete menu as given. Uh, just like when you walk into a restaurant, maybe you don't want the rice. Maybe you'd want a potato instead. Or maybe you just want a salad in, and substitute for all of that. So we can do a la carte relationships. You can start with a prototype that you like, like I want monogamy. And you can move into, but I don't like this and I like that. But I kind of like to see what this is like. And if you, I think if you start that way with your partner, those relationships have a better chance of lasting. And it's, it's interesting because basically, to me, the, the analogy I'm thinking of is, you know, somebody walking into a restaurant at six o'clock and ordering pancakes. <laughs> Essentially, what you're saying <laughs> is that the rules, and I love this because you're, the rules that society has placed on us, you know, that who can marry who, how old should somebody be, and basically... You're saying, no, 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 all of it 
all of it doesn't matter and that we write that ourselves? I think we need to write what is honest and true. And believe it or not, Dr. Richard, I think most people like to feel the prioritization and the honoring of being exclusive. And I think for as you know, advanced as people want to make it, I love this, like, oh, we're in an open relationship. It's like, dude, you can't be faithful. That's not, they're different. They're very different than a committed open relationship. Okay. So people twist these words to make it work with whatever their, their picadillos may be. But it's, at least it's good that people are, are asking the questions, what do I want? How do I want it? How do I want it to look and taste and feel in the real world? Because that way, you'll be entering something you might stay in, right? A question that I would ask you, because everything you're saying really resonates with me, and I'm sure it does with a lot of our listeners. What do you say to the couple that faces a similar situation to what you did? And maybe not necessarily, you know, in age, but maybe... It's different religious backgrounds or different ethnicities, and then they are having that pushback from friends and family in their community. What's the first step? Oh, boy, I know this one really well. Well, they have to be a unified front. First of all, a lot of it is if you have to stand up for what you believe, you have to realize not everybody is going to accept it, and we don't have to make them accept it. But what we do ask is to be respected, not tormented. Not every relative or community member will like your lifestyle. That's okay. It's, it's, it's fine. And I think that oftentimes if you're breaking the news to somebody or you're trying to make a good impression, the best thing is to understand that most people will default to your underlying energy, which means if you have to make a presentation, like you had to say to somebody, uh, you had to take your parents to introduce your older girlfriend, and you're scared that your mother's going to go, oh my gosh, I won't have grandchildren. If you can both present it with like, we love each other, and this is our truth, and expect the good thing. If you're fearing their wrath, you're going to be very nervous. You're going to be uncomfortable. You may even be defensive. So that doesn't work. But you know, the front runners of every aspect of evolution, we're the infantry, and we've got to take the hit. And it doesn't matter whether you're a scientist in a deeply religious time period or if you are the first black man to live with a white woman in the 1950s and (laughs) try to escape any kind of incrimination because of it. You know, we all have to do what is in our hearts to do and live our truth. And our front runners uh, take the hit for all of us. It's always been that way. Understand that you're part of a pack that is in the process of changing that rusty cog of human evolution and pushing it forward. No doubt a lot of people have benefited from your book. I'm sure you've gotten a lot of really encouraging feedback over the years from people that have read it. But your second book is such a radical departure in theme from that. Talk about allowing magnificence. Well, that, that I didn't want to be about relationships because I'd said everything I was going to say at that time. But I, I discovered that the way I thought not only worked for me, but it seemed to work for other people. And that was a departure from everything I'd learned. When I was growing up, uh, Dr. Richard, my take on a given situation would be completely different than my parents and everyone around me. And so for years, all, all of my adult years, 
as a matter of fact, I doubted my internal answer. I doubted my analysis. It felt right, but the voices of all the people around me seemed so much in unison that I thought, well, maybe I just don't know. And through a series of dating mishaps and through a series of researching, I started to trust myself and I started to realize that I did know. And I thought, what would happen if I gave myself permission to actually live according to my understanding of what a scenario was? And I was dating bad boys at the time for research because I'd had loving, committed relationships. And I thought, I'll never be able to help these millennial women if I don't hurry up this uh, sex bit and trying to get some bad boys under my belt so I can get the worst whiplash and see how would I recover. And somehow in all of this, I discovered that the things that we call challenges can actually be reframed. Most of what bothers me in the world is I see people suffering through things that have to happen. Life has to press you. We are going to have challenges. There's no way to get rid of that. And if we think we like to be comfortable, comfortable is stasis. You see, so you're either seeking comfort and what is known, or you're seeking change and disruption. But wouldn't it be cool if we could put the two of them together and not be afraid of either side of that coin? So allowing magnificence was how to assess a situation, how to make it work for you, knowing that life is urging us to advance. And even the bad stuff, the stuff we call bad, may actually be fully intended to bring our grace and and our own evolution out. It could be the very thing we need, but if we keep fighting it, we'll never get the gift. So that's what that book is all about. So in the book, I know you walk through steps, so to speak. You have six main points on how to essentially achieve that. Talk to us a little bit about that. (laughs) You know, it's been so long since I've read it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One thing that I did that I don't hear anybody talking about is that life has cycles. And, you know, I learn a lot from looking at nature. We are living beings. We're connected to this earth. There's wintertime. I think each individual in our life, we have death cycles. And listen, they don't get a lot of praise. Nobody likes them. But I think oftentimes, for those of us who've lived long enough, we will look back on a major event that happened that we called a catastrophe that was indeed the death cycle that heralded our new birth. I know it happened to me. My father had died, FNN <laughs> was sold to somebody else. My, my own company was failing and I left a boyfriend of 10 years and I, I, I up and left New York. I just, and so I was trying like Humpty Dumpty trying to put all the pieces of my old life back together again and nothing was sticking. I was not that person. I couldn't make myself look like that. And I, I fought it because I didn't know how to let go and let it take me in change. And so I think that's an important thing that if we can start to see that we're in a spiral, to just tuck and roll, don't fight it, and trust that life is on our side. Life is life. Is, life wants us to evolve. That is the purpose of life. We're all supposed to be evolving. So it's not going to throw stuff in your way like, oh, let me just ruin this guy's day. Boom, here's, a, here's an accident. Boom, here's something else. No, life isn't out to get you. Life has better things to do, right? So I just started to realize that it's simple equations that you can use alchemy in everyday life and get over a lot of your pain. And that is, we create that pain ourselves by the way we look at it. When you say alchemy, what are you speaking about? 
changing the garbage to gold. You are going to have crisis. We are going to have people betray us. We are going to have heartache. We will have moments of bad health. We will have moments of financial insecurity. Stuff is going to happen. How do we know that's bad? It's just stuff. If we can just find a way to get on board with ourselves and look for the gem, look for what is trying to happen underneath this assumed chaos. What is really trying to happen? What's trying to change? What's trying to push us? What's trying to reroute us? Normally, it's a reroute. We really want you doing this. We know you love finance. You thought that's where your job was. We really want you to do this over here. This is where you're going to resonate and be happy. So I think life is guiding us. And some of the doors that close, even health. I know people who are always giving of themselves and never taking care of themselves will sometimes have a physical breakdown because they've got to come to the point of, okay, 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 in order to help everybody else, I have to be okay. So now it has to be a priority. So that's that's a blessing inside that situation. And in your situation, thinking back to Financial News Network, it was what appeared to be a happenstance meeting with a woman wildly dressed that <laughs> sent your career in a completely different direction. Yeah, because I needed more. I mean, I could go in and work with my corporations and that's great, but I wanted to be on camera. I wanted to be national. I wanted to be international. And then when I no more than just sunk my teeth into it, boom, it gets ripped aside. And I'm like, okay, what do I do now? Uh, I was with my young boyfriend, uh, tried to fight his family off and keep my sanity. Didn't know where I was going. And then I had the correct collision of everything to take me to the next point that I was supposed to be on my own trajectory. And the next point and the next point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of those points, and I have to ask, because you mentioned it on your bio on Amazon, was becoming a real life action figure. Oh, this is so hysterical. So I was the chubby girl. I don't mean I was fat, uh, but I was the fleshy, non-athletic girl my whole life. You know, you don't get muscular riding horses and playing golf. And so I didn't run. I'm an only child, remote area of the country, grew up alone, horses and dogs. And I just dreaded this. And I'd always had, and I also hit puberty at the time Twiggy came out. So my kind of curvaceous body within 24 hours was out of style for the next 30 years. I mean, it was just a nightmare, right? And so I always had an insecurity about my body and I had been trying with the grapefruit fruit diet and Weight Watchers and you name it, I was always insecure. And when I had my much younger boyfriend, remember, I flipped from 39 to 40. He flipped from 18 to 19. He was gorgeous, 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 gorgeous. And I looked pretty good. I'd been training with weights. I'd lived with a pro bodybuilder for 10 years and I'd gotten better, but I never really had it 100% locked. This kid my young guy told me that I could do it, made me believe in myself, gave to me what a professional bodybuilder who is the trainer to the stars and celebrities didn't want to give me, didn't want me to have my confidence. And this young guy made me feel that way. And, you know, so I would put pictures on my refrigerator of fantasy, of uh, not fantasy action figures, fitness girls. And I already looked like that. I was already doing lingerie and pinup modeling uh, for certain artists, a very, very tasteful. And then when I already looked like that, where do you go next, right? So I started cutting out the uh, fantasy, the comic book characters. And two, also Dr. Richard, remember, I was going through a lot of heat for living with my younger boyfriend and everywhere, whether it was getting eggs in the grocery store, getting gas, whatever, 
somebody had a snide remark to say, or, you know, even throwing, throwing things at my house and dirty phone calls in the middle of the night. It was, it was really horrific. So the fantasy action figures, you know, nobody messed with them. They had swords, machine guns, and they were tough girls, and they had 12-inch waists and 48-inch breasts. And, you know, they're not real, but they, they looked powerful. So they represented the exterior of what I wanted on the interior. And I just, just on a whim, I went into Manhattan to a Comic-Con conference, and I walked around and I said, are you an illustrator? Are you an illustrator? Oh, you're an illustrator. Do you use models? Do you use models? Okay. Two guys said they used models and they both hired me for the same character, Lady Death in Chaos Comics. So my face and body are on covers of magazines. I'm, I did the Lady in Red from Matrix. I'm the doll for that. I have numerous, I have um, Anita Manaday from DC from the Vertigo line, Knockout. I am not only the face I, and the body. So it's really a big deal when you get your face, when you get your own character that's in a comic book that is your face. That's pretty cool. So that was a lot of fun from, you know, the kid that wouldn't even wear a swimsuit because she was embarrassed. I think to bring it full circle, what an awesome illustration of allowing magnificence. You know, it's funny. Um, I used to have the posters. And when I first got into a studio apartment back in New York, I still had my home in New Jersey. I, I needed to come here for my sanity just to regroup because I'd been so beaten up by my little community out there. And I needed to remember who I was. And I, I'd hang my posters up because they were the covers of these magazines. And my mother was alive and she came to visit me once uh, and she said, oh my God, those are pornographic. And I said, mom, uh, listen, they're wearing like thigh high boots and they got a sword in their hand and a push-up bra, but that's how everybody fights, right? That's how the comic book <laughs> girls fight. And I said, she, you know, you got to understand it's the external representation of somebody that has the ability to defend themselves. And I, I didn't have that there. And then the really cool thing is when older women and younger men came out, that book was actually my sword. That book did more for that community. You know what they did? I remember my girlfriend was working in the country club in the lounge when, when I came on Oprah. And she said this huge, huge television screen and all your old neighbors that wanted to say the worst things about you. She said, I looked up and I said, hey, hey, didn't that girl used to live here? And she said their faces turned white and they dropped their jaws, like 20 people. So. There is a divine justice in all of this, I think. <laughs> it certainly sounds like it. And besides, if not, you're Lady Death. <laughs> You've That's got right. a sword. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you don't mess with Lady Death. That's really uh, uh, amazing. So now, today, 2017, Susan, what inspires you today? Oh, boy. All my clients inspire me and my colleagues. You know, I work with these young, beautiful, bright people, and they inspire me so much by their collaboration. And artistically, I feel very good about what I'm doing. I'm working in a lot of video. I love writing, but I've given up writing right now to focus exclusively on video. And so I love the fact that I can reach so many people in such a short amount of time. And it's better for my body to not be on a computer 12 hours a day. So that just you know life and just watching watching the changes watching watching millennials how okay everybody says oh they don't do this right they don't do that they can't pay attention they're multitasking they're all over the place they can't create a relationship they can't stay with a job true but they also are redefining 
all this stuff I had to fight to change. I didn't need to do that. Yeah, good that I did it, but they already changed it. It's okay to be yourself. It's okay to want what you want. It's okay to live your truth. Not only that, it's kind of a requirement. And in their business model, they don't need to, my winning doesn't mean you have to fail. Their business model is win-win. And their model for life isn't you work 100-hour weeks and sacrifice your life and your health until you're so rich you can't believe it, but then you spend the rest of your money on healthcare. Theirs is like, no, I want to you know, hike and I want to have a good weekend and kayak. And they take jobs that make them happy. And so all this stuff I was trying to illuminate would have happened anyway, I think. But then again, you know you needed your voice to help it get there. So I think we have to do what we have to do. But I think life is going to do it anyway. I think we assist it. Um, but it's kind of interesting because that's what I'm inspired by now, technology and where all these people are going. And I think we started down this road a little bit with what you just told us. But one of the things that I do is, as you know, I ask all of my guests for their biggest helping. That is the single most important piece of information for a listener to walk away with having heard you. You know, I always give a different answer every time when somebody asks anything like this. But in today's modern world of technology and all these shifting times and social media and Facebook being our latest access to our PR, nothing beats character. And nothing you do beats who you are when you do it. And if you feel like you're struggling in some aspect of your life, whether it's love or business, I promise you that what you invest in yourself, in your self-growth, in living by your own code, in being true to yourself, and being ethical and honorable, that will hold you in great stead. And that's kind of the gift that comes up sideways and jumps over everything. So if you're ever tempted to do something and be lesser because it looks like that's successful, ultimately it really isn't. And uh, stay true to yourself. I love that. Fantastic. Thank you. Susan, where can people find you? At susanwinter.net. And you can also find me on YouTube. I'm Susan E. Winter. If you just type Susan Winter into your browser, you should see a whole page of me coming up right away. Fantastic. And we will also link to you and your books on the Daily Helping app and our website as well. Thank you, Dr. Richard. Thank you. Susan, I enjoyed this so much. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for providing this service for all of your fans to really get a multiple. Uh, you have a lot of different slices of how to get the best out of life and be the best version of yourself. I think it's very important that we have programs of this quality that are truly educational and inspirational. So thank you for providing your service to all of us. I appreciate that to be sure. And thank all of you who tuned in today to listen to this episode. If you liked what you heard, please go out and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Leave a five-star review. That helps other people find this show. And go out there today and do something nice for somebody else. Even if you don't know who they are, post it in your feeds or in the app using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. Until next time. <laughs>